Good to have your company. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest today is Pastor Colin Winch. With his wife Melva, Colin spent 34 years in the South Pacific Islands as a nurse, pilot and church administrator. Along with Pastor Len Barnard, Colin began the first Seventh-day Adventist flying service to the remote villages of Papua New Guinea. Colin was the first chief flying instructor at the Avondale Flying School and later the chief pilot for the South Pacific Division of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He has a commercial pilot's license. He is also the only missionary to have been the president of the church's three union missions in the South Pacific, Papua New Guinea, Central Pacific and Western Pacific. With more than 10,000 hours of flying and some of the most challenging flying conditions in the world, Colin has many amazing stories to tell. In the last program, Colin told us four of these stories. Today I'm talking with Colin about his life as a missionary and his early life and influences, but we're going to begin with another story this morning. Welcome, Colin. Thank you, Barry. It's a delight to be here. Thanks for joining me again. I thoroughly enjoyed your stories last week, and I look forward to our conversation today. Tell me about the time the control column jammed during a tricky landing in the southern highlands of Papua New Guinea. I was flying a Cessna 180, uh, named the Andrew Stewart, uh, after a famous church missionary of years before. And we were flying from Taree, a large airstrip in the Southern Highlands, to a little short airstrip called Como Menanda, only about 10 minutes flying away. This airstrip is interesting because on the approach end, it's only a one-way strip, on the approach end there's a cliff that drops down to a river below. At the other end there's a mountain. And so when you land there, you need to be careful just where you put the wheels. A little bit too early and you'll lose your undercarriage uh, and possibly your life. Uh, too late and you overrun the runway, then you're into the bush and, uh, and a mountain. The reason for our flying was to help uh, Brother Alwyn Galway uh, the missionary at Taree, to carry out a visitation program in the Como Menanda area. He was taking bags of rice, cartons of fish, uh, Bibles, uh, projector, all the necessary things to do a patrol uh, and spread the uh, message of Jesus' love to the people. We were going to do uh, three three loads. We loaded up the first one and I taxied off uh, by myself and took off toward the west and then turned for Como Menanda. I landed there. There were people waiting to collect the goods I had on board. We unloaded it. I... Uh, then I got in the aircraft, had a word of prayer, as I did on the first flight, and took off and returned to Taree. Landed, picked up the second load. Same thing. Prayer first. 
flew into Kamamananda, unloaded, came back empty and landed ready for the uh, next load. However, the landing on this occasion was interesting to say the least. As I approached, the wind was right on my nose. Taree airstrip is an interesting one. It has three windsocks, one each end, one in the middle. And invariably, they're pointing in different directions. Also, it's subject to gusty winds coming down some of the, the little valleys. I did a, uh, an impeccable landing. It was a, what we call, we pilots call a real greaser. Landed on the front wheels, not a three-pointer, just on the front wheels. And you know, there's a saying that pride cometh before a fall. <laughs> it's certainly true on this occasion. I was hoping that Alwyn had seen the landing, even though it was a long way away from him. And then a gust of wind hit me from behind, lifted the tail of the aircraft and the nose went down. That, that wasn't a problem. I just pulled back on the c controls and they were jammed. I couldn't get anything out of them. I pulled and pulled. And there was no question in my mind that I was going to go over onto my back. And I, I just cried out in desperation, oh God, Please help me. Barry, some of these stories, you know, I, I, I try to find a logical answer to them, but often I can't. And to have an instant answer to prayer, like in this occasion, um, is just incredible. It was as if a giant hand came and pushed the tail back down. The push was so firm that I was thrown forward in my harness. We're rolling along the Tari strip, this gravel strip, and the tail wheel came down and I could then taxi and so I taxied up to the parking bay where Alwyn was waiting, sitting on a bag of rice. He came to the door and uh, I opened the door and he said, Cole, what's wrong? You're as white as a ghost. I said, Alwyn, so you would be if you'd just been through what I've been through. And I explained to him what had happened. I said, look, the control will not uh, move, it's jammed. I had ailerons, but no elevator. So I said, I better look inside the, uh, the fuselage toward the tail. And so I took out one of the compartment dividers and I could look inside, I could see the control wires from the control column going down to the back of the aircraft. It, everything appeared to be okay. I gave a tug on them, but they, well, they were jammed. And then Alwyn called out, Colin, come and have a look at this. And so I got out of the aircraft, walked back to where he was standing, and 
there was a piece, a lump of fiberglass coming through outside the hollow wing, through one of the holes in the back where the elevator joins to the little wing, the tail plane, and it had jammed the elevator. It could go down, but it couldn't come up. And I said, I wonder what that is. To cut a long story short, what uh, had happened is in the highlands, when you're flying with tailwheel aircraft, because of the stones that are there, when you take off and the thrust of the uh, propeller, the blast of air coming back from the propeller will throw stones from the wheel, pick them up on the wheel, and throws them back and it hits the leading edge of the tailplane and it can damage it quite badly. And we put rubber sleeves on it, on it to protect it from these, uh, this stone damage. One of the other pilots thought that he'd fix it and he put this clot of fiberglass along that edge to try and give it firmness. Didn't refer it to any of us. And uh, what had happened was that it had been breaking away, breaking away. And eventually, when I was doing my second landing into Taru, it broke off and came back and poked its head out through the, the holes that are in the rear of the tailplane and jammed the controls. But Barry, the thing that impressed me was God was there for me. I, I, I was beyond my capabilities. I couldn't do anything. I was going over for sure. Please, God, help me. And he did. What a great story. How did you come to be a missionary to the South Pacific? What was your motivation for doing all of this? When did you make the decision to be a missionary? Uh, Barry, when I was a youngster of about 12 years, I attended the Concord Church in Western Sydney. This is the Seventh-day Adventist Church? That's the Seventh-day Adventist Church, yes. And... Uh, there was an old German sawmiller who was a mate of my dad's. They used to go fishing together. And he took a particular interest in the, the young Winchy. And every morning when I, when I came to church, he would be waiting there for me. Uh, I can see him now with one of his feet up on the fence and waiting for me to come. And he used to welcome me with a great bear hug. I can remember being enveloped by these huge sawmiller's arms. And he would whisper in my ear, Colleen, one day you will be a missionary. Week after week after week. And it made a deep impression on me that maybe that's what God wanted me to do. And then I went to a, in the assembly hall um, in, near Wynyard in Sydney, I went to 
a regional meeting and there was a Dr. Jaws, J-O-E-R-S, I think he spelt his name. He was from South Africa and uh, he was a mission medical doctor and he took an excellent service and told stories of his experiences in the mission field in Africa. At the end of the program, he made an appeal for anyone who felt the call to be a missionary, would they come down the front? He would pray for them and he'd like to shake their hands. I wanted to go. I felt the call. I felt the Holy Spirit talking to me. Colin, get up. But I, I was shy, desperately shy as a kid, pathologically shy. And in front of all those people, no one else was moving out of their seats. I didn't have the courage to go. And so I keep sitting. And then he made an appeal again. Somehow he sensed that there was someone in that hall who wanted to be a missionary and wanted to dedicate his life to mission service. And he made the second call. I, I almost stood up. I started to move, but my nervousness got the better of me. And so I just kept my seat. And then, bless your heart, he made the third appeal. And I just couldn't resist any longer. I stood and shakily on spindly legs walked down the aisle and nobody else was coming. All eyes in that hall were looking at me. And when I arrived at the front, the big man threw his arms around me. Wish me God's richest blessings and asked the people to bow. And they had a word of prayer. And I guess, Barry, that's, uh, that's where it happened. And you're a 12-year-old. Yes. When I interviewed Pastor Gordon Lee, he also made a decision to be a Christian and a missionary as a pre-teen as well. So you share, and you're both friends, I understand. Mm. So you share that, that, um, that life story where have you worked uh, during your ministry in the South Pacific? I understand there's 26 different places. What are some of them? Um, I guess after I graduated from the uh, Sydney Adventist Hospital, I did one year as a staff nurse, as a graduate nurse. During that year, I married my wife, Melva. But you would have been um, able to do medicine, wouldn't you? Why did you choose nursing rather than medicine? It was a shorter course and uh, it seemed to me that I, I, I needed to get out to the islands. I wanted to be in God's work as quickly as possible. And so that's why I made that decision. As it turned out, it wasn't much shorter at all. But yes, it was uh, a decision that I haven't regretted. 
God has been good to me in the work that he has given me to do. If you'd made the decision to do medicine, you might not have spent quite so much time flying. That's possibly so too. So where are some of these places that you worked? Our first appointment, Melva and I, was to Kukundu in the Western Solomon Islands uh, at the Amy's Memorial Hospital where I was the superintendent. Melva looked after all the uh, babies and uh, the births. Mm. And um, we also had a leper colony about a mile down the road uh, where we uh, had a, a number of lepers. Then I was called to Musau in Papua New Guinea and uh, was the principal of the school there, district director for the district and also the head of the hospital they had there. So the Lord had a fair bit of work for me to do. There's significant place. responsibilities for a young man. Indeed. Did you feel prepared, adequately prepared for all of this? Not always, no. Particularly the teaching. I hadn't taught a class in my life, except a Sabbath school class. Yes. And, uh, no, I wasn't really prepared. New missionaries are not always that well prepared. You learn as you go. You really need to rely on God, don't you? Indeed. What challenges did your work throw up for you? What are some of the most significant challenges that were thrown up by your your work? While uh, in the Solomons at the Amy's Memorial Hospital, I had to we had a doctor come off come over to help uh, uh, do some surgery on the feet of the lepers, and. Uh, I gave my first anaesthetic that uh, day and gave quite a few more anaesthetics. Also... You had done some preparation in Sydney, hadn't you? Yes, yes. Uh, I did spent a, a whole week um, doing tropical diseases at uh, the Sydney University. It was a rush course, especially for people who are planters and traders and I took that and also spent a week in the dental hospital learning how to pull teeth. What impact did your itinerant life have on your family? Because you're moving around quite a bit. Yes, uh, Barry, when the plane came and Len and I were flying, we were doing our own district flying, taking us to uh, areas where we had work to do, but also everybody else in the mission had work to do and they wanted to utilise the plane. And so that meant that uh, I was away from home a lot and it, it had a significant impact on the children and Melva. Melva was wonderful. Absolutely marvellous. On a lonely mission station, one place she didn't see another white woman for a, for a year. And months on our own was quite, when I say on our own, away from expatriate company was quite uh, a lot. But uh, that had an influence on, on our children and uh, I guess on me too. It was hard being away so much and then coming home and then having to go off and do your own district work 
So, yeah, it, it was a factor. So your wife's having to put up with isolation? Yes. Your absence? Yes. Um, primitive living conditions often? Yes. And probably less access to food than she would normally have? Yes, definitely. We used to buy in from uh, Australia, you know, cartons of tin foods and uh, whenever we could get into town, which wasn't very often, a couple of times a year, we'd uh, stock up on items of food. Your lives must have been very busy. Tell me about a typical day at this period, this early period in your, in your missionary work. Melva would be busy uh, educating the children. She uh, taught the children school with the help of a correspondence course from Sydney. And uh, whenever there was a birth, she was called to deliver the birth, the baby. And uh, sometimes the hospital would call her down there to see a patient. Uh, that was when I was away. Uh, when I was there, I would attend to all the calls and all the emergencies um, and be teaching in the school when we were at Bolu. So, yes, it was uh, a busy life. Your wife is obviously a very special lady to put up with um, those difficult living conditions and the isolation. How important was her contribution to the success of your work? Very important, Barry. I couldn't have done what I did if it hadn't been for my dear Melba, who understood uh, the pressures that were on me and uh, she accepted her lot and did an absolutely marvellous job. Mm. She was greatly appreciated by the people and uh, had a, such a lovely nature and she loved the Lord and she felt that uh, this was going to be our life's work. Mm. Now the arrival of the plane makes your life less busy in one sense but more busy in another sense. In other words, you have mm. to be flying a lot but it also makes your work more efficient, doesn't it? Yes. So what was the impact of flying and the, and the plane, the available planes, on the church's work in the South Pacific? It made a significant impact. Places where before it was too expensive to charter aircraft to go in and open up the work in those areas, now we could fly our own plane there and one that I think of is when I was in the Sepik district at a place called Marprik. That's when the plane arrived. Um, we wanted to open up the border area with the West Irian border. There was a lot of villages in that area. And so I flew um, three pastors whose names I can remember, uh, Pastor Reggie Miorko, Pastor Silas Rausu, and Pastor Peter Pondek. These were marvellous men, and we took them uh, up to the Parge area on the West Irian border, and they patrolled through the area to see if there was any interest in schools, 
uh, in having a missionary and uh, I went back and uh, picked them up after a, a month and they had some wonderful stories to tell and the work just flourished. It just took off the uh, people wanting schools for their children which weren't uh, happening up until we arrived. So the plane resulted in greater efficiency in terms of man hours and uh, greater convenience in terms of delivering people to isolated places. Yes. What do you consider your greatest success in ministry? If I've had any success, it is because of the way God led me and God's blessing upon the work that I did, but more correctly, the work that the national workers did, the people I was working with, the credit for for this work that opened up is, is rightly placed with our national workers. They're the men with courage. I was just the person who flew them in and uh, made suggestions of what they possibly could do, and uh, they did a marvellous job. What aspect of your ministry has given you the greatest satisfaction? I guess sometimes we can have successes, but they're not necessarily the ones that give us the greatest satisfaction. What's the thing about your ministry that's given you the greatest satisfaction? Uh, Baptising the souls the people who have given their hearts to Jesus as a result of my national workers' uh, efforts and evangelism. Also, Barry, um, when I became chief pilot for the church in the South Pacific, it was running seminars for the pilots Nearly all the pastor pilots that were working with us had private pilot's licences only. And so I would run a school for them each year when I visited to do the, the flight checking. And I used to check every pilot once a year in the plane, creating emergencies for them. We've had some funny uh, situations in that phase of the work. But uh, these pilots became particularly efficient. I was really proud of them. Only a private pilot's licence, but they were equally as good, if not better, than commercial pilots because we ran a program that made it possible for them to become completely au fait with their districts, where the gaps are, how to handle steep airstrips. Um, This gave them a confidence and they were dependent on God in all their flying. Every pilot has a word of prayer before he takes off. We know God is with us and it was a delight to see that we had no accidents whatsoever uh, during the nearly 15 years that I was chief pilot there. And that wasn't Due to me, it was due to the, the these pilots becoming so proficient and God's blessing without a question. Did your motivation ever change over the course of your ministry? Did it deepen and grow? 
Did it change in some way? Yes, as as I experienced some of these stories that I've told, it made me realise how good God is, how uh, how he wonderfully cared for me and my wife and children and for our other missionary pilots. Their story is similar to ours. Their wives are left alone um, while they do the flying. And uh, yes, I became more dependent on my dear God. What did you learn about yourself from your work? Life always teaches us things about ourselves. What did life teach you about yourself? Particularly in these um, in these island these island escapades that you've had. I realized that uh, I wasn't so smart after all particularly when I didn't check that fuel top. That came as a terrific shock to me that I had failed. It probably still stings when you think about it. It does. I could have gladly avoided that uh, story in your program. But you realise that uh, God really does love you, that he cares that he's willing to step in in dangerous situations to save you, I am just so ever grateful to my God of love. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, I'll be talking with Colin about his early life and experiences. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABM Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3ABN Australia all one word .org.au Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia Thank you for your prayers and financial support If you've just joined us I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings My guest is Pastor Colin Winch. We've been talking about Colin's work as a missionary to the South Pacific. In the remaining time, I'll be talking with Colin about his early life and influences. Colin, where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in Toowoomba at uh, 30 minutes past midnight on the 2nd of July. And uh, then when I was just about ready to start school, we moved down to... Western Sydney to the uh, suburb of Concord and uh, I went to the Mortlake Public School and that was a rough school, had rough kids in it and then 
for my last two years of primary, I went to the Burwood Adventist School and then did my five years of uh, secondary training. Tell me about your family. We have a beautiful family, uh, Melva and I. We have uh, our firstborn, Kerry. She became a nurse and still is a nurse. Uh, our second, Carol, she did nursing training at the same hospital that Melva and I trained at. Then narrowly felt with four nurses in the family, that was enough. And uh, uh, she has been uh, um, working in uh, cooking, uh, doing uh, wedding preparations and uh, that type of thing. And she's been quite successful. And Chris, our son, is a registered builder and he's quite... uh, has a lot of know-how on doing plans with computers and uh, he's kept busy in that and he's now doing the ministerial course at Avondale College. Uh, he wants to become a pastor at the age of 50. So uh, he started a little late but he's loving his studies. That's wonderful. When you were growing up, was religion part of your family life? Not really, Barry. My dad was a Seventh-day Adventist. My mum had been a Seventh-day Adventist up until seven years of age. And then her father realised what was happening and sent her right across from Western Australia to Gosford in the New South Wales area to a ladies' school where religion was thumped out of her. And so when Dad would invite me to go to church with him, Mum would have a counter-offer. Quite often it was enough money to uh, get a milkshake and go to the pictures. Um, So we had a a turbulent family. My sister, uh, Barbara, was eight years older than me and uh, she and I got on pretty well. But that was uh, the family, not really religious, no. Did you feel loved and accepted within the family? Definitely. Both my mum and dad did show their love, even though they didn't seem to love each other and there was a lot of arguments. They uh, poured love onto me and uh, I felt very accepted. We heard about how you um, became a missionary or your first um, commitment to being a missionary when you were a 12-year-old. But tell me about your spiritual journey and your conversion. Was the con- when, did, when, when do you feel that you were converted? Was it at the time you made that decision? Was I th- it prior to that? No, I think with, with Fred Ludwig taking such an interest in me, I felt that I would uh, take up some vocation connected with the church But I really gave my heart uh, kneeling with Dr. Jaws in the uh, assembly hall that day that I said I wanted to be a a missionary. And you never wavered from that decision? Never have. How how did you meet Melva? She was in the class, two classes behind me at the SAN, and uh, I saw this uh, attractive girl. And 
we became friends and then I invited her to come with me down to the local hall to see the Queen is Crowned film and uh, love blossomed from there. If you had your life over, would you do it all again? Yes. Only one request would be that I have... I would know what I know now and then I wouldn't have made so many mistakes. Yes, it was a great life. Tell me what your faith means to you. Take a little time to uh, just tell me what your faith means. Barry, uh, my faith means everything to me. My belief in God the Father, his Son, Jesus, who died on the cross for me. And I believe with all my heart that the promise that he gave to us, if we would accept him, that our sins would be forgiven and we would be in paradise with him for eternity. I believe that. And the Holy Spirit has worked on my heart. I sense the Spirit's leading in my life and it's been wonderful to walk with God. You're retired now. Do you still fly? I'm taking a sabbatical at the moment, uh, just uh, this year, and uh, whether I take it up again remains to be seen. What have you learned from your life that you would like to share with our listeners today? That God cares. That he is interested in each individual. That he loves us dearly. I'd like to read a text if I may, uh, Barry. Please do. It's found in Isaiah 41 and verses 10 and 13. Fear thou not, for I am with you. Be not discouraged, for I am your God. I will uphold you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. righteousness. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying unto you, Fear not. I will help you. And it has been God who has helped me so much in my work for him. And I am deeply grateful for his love. Occasionally, mission pilots die. You've been brought to um, your retirement after thousands of hours of flying in really challenging conditions throughout the South Pacific. Um, sometimes we don't know why one survives and one doesn't, do we? No. But clearly the Lord has, uh, has blessed you with, with safety on those occasions when, when you might have died and others might have died with you. Colin, we've got some extra time this morning in our conversation and there are two stories that I'd like you to tell me. One is the story about the first flight in an aircraft that you ever had in Taramara Park in Sydney. And the other one is about the young boy in Papua New Guinea, I assume, who was showing off to the girls 
and caught one of these bags that you threw out of the aircraft. Would you like to tell me those two stories? I was doing my... Um, I had completed my nursing course and was a staff nurse at the Sydney Adventist Hospital. And uh, some of the, the lads who were there with me doing training uh, decided they'd like to build an aeroplane. None of us had ever been in an aeroplane nor near it. So uh, Doug and I went down to the library in Sydney and tried to get some information. It was all too technical for us. So we just took measurements and decided we would uh, shrink them down to uh, the size of the aircraft we wanted, and we built it. We got a fair bit of flack from the nurses training there at the hospital. They made fun of us, but we assured them one day they'd see us flying over the place and, you know, wave, because it's us. It didn't really go that far, but... After we completed building the aircraft, I built the fuselage, Doug and Ellis built the wings, and uh, we put it together. It looked nice. Then we had to pull it apart and put it on the back of a ute. Wasn't the undercarriage a pram? Yes, we got pram wheels from underneath the hospital uh, off a pram, and uh, they were the wheels. Not too substantial, but they worked. For a little while, the we went down to the Taramara Oval on a Sunday morning, and when some of the faithful going to church saw the shape of an aeroplane on the back of this ute, they uh, followed us, and so we had quite an audience to witness the first flight. I thought that I should be the pilot because I was the only one with a driver's license. Never been in an aeroplane. Doug, however, felt that it would be fairer to toss for it. So we tossed and uh, Doug won. So I was relegated to the back of the ute to uh, tend the rope that was going to pull it to test fly it. It had no engine. And... Doug tried to get into the aeroplane. However, I was slim and the measurements that I used were my hip size and uh, Doug was uh, a little rotund and as he tried to squeeze down, it was agony for him. Some of the uh, church goers, or supposed to be goers, came over and helped, held the aircraft and pushed him down, much to his cries of agony. And then uh, we started to pull the aircraft across the field. Nothing happened. It just kept rolling. I was giving instructions as best I knew how and uh, still didn't get airborne. There was a, a big drain coming up. So Glenn, the driver of the ute, did a sudden turn left. I threw away the rope and left Doug to his own devices. Um, there were no brakes on the machine and he, he, there was no steerable tailwheel. It was just a skid. And so he just kept going toward the drain and stopped on the very verge of the drain. So we came out and rescued him and uh, trying to get him out of the aircraft was interesting. Two of us took him under the... Uh, 
armpits and lifted and the whole dug and the whole aeroplane came off the ground. So we called for help and all the faithful came and held the aircraft down as we pulled him out. And there were cries of agony as we pulled him out and we succeeded without breaking the aeroplane. The, it was then my turn. And when I got in and looked ahead to where we were going to go or where I thought we were going to go, I could see these houses and trees. If this thing does start flying, where am I going to go? First realisation. However, Glenn decided to take a different track across the uh, field and in the middle was a concrete cricket pitch and uh, it uh, was proud about three inches above the, the grass and we headed for that. The ute hit it and went over it and then the plane hit it and the noise of the rumble of the wheels was no longer there. I realised I was airborne for two reasons. One, the bump, but the other reason why there was no wheel noise was because the wheels had left the aircraft. The undercarriage had broken on this cricket pitch. But I flew. First time, Barry. How high were you flying? They told me about three to six inches. <laughs> so uh, we took the plane back to uh, the hospital and uh, we uh, re-rigged it, put the pilot up the front, tried to get the balance right and then took it out on the, uh, the paddock, the cow paddock at the hospital. And there was a lot more room here. And because I'd been successful flying it before uh, and with the strengthened undercarriage, I decided that I would be the pilot and Doug didn't worry about that. So we tied uh, the plane to a, a Chevrolet coupe that unregistered hence we had to do it in the paddock, that George Evans had. And uh, we rumbled down the paddock, but unfortunately the dairy manager had put all the cows in this paddock just recently, and I was getting smothered in these cow pats. And I called a hot a halt, and I invited Doug to have a go, and he had the same experience. So we decided we'll just pull the aeroplane without anybody in it. And bless your heart, it took off. Rose to about 16 feet, uh, five metres maybe, and followed the car around as George turned. So the plane followed the car. It was a thing of beauty, Barry. Did it impress the nurses? Those who saw it, it would have, yeah. It impressed the people at the, at the church headquarters, however. They saw it and saw me, someone who'd been pestering them to be a missionary and wondered where this fellow was going. Um, George tried to get the aircraft down for us softly. He slowed down, but the aircraft kept 
applying. It was fairly slippery and it'd come up and it was going to hit him in the back of the head. Um, he'd go off again and then try and slow down. And we were yelling instructions to him. He said, it's all right for you fellas. This thing's going to kill me. And so he eventually headed for a tree. And that's the end of the story, Barry. That's <laughs> the last up, time that... That aircraft flew. Did that aircraft have a name? Not that I recall. <laughs> so this story is back in the 1950s. Yes. I imagine. Now tell me about the story about the young man who tried to catch the, uh, the package that came out of the aircraft. I was doing an airdrop with my president from the local mission who also wanted to be a pilot and became a pilot later on, Elwyn Rathel. And we were going to a village called uh, Samumini. It didn't have an airstrip. Later it did and now still has an airstrip. But uh, we were just dropping in the playground of the school. We'd given instructions that everyone was to go under the houses or in the houses, that uh, these bags packed such a wallop that it could kill somebody if they got in the road of one. We had three bags to drop. We came around, flew over the village and vroom, vroom, vroom with the engine, letting them know, get under the houses. Everybody comes out and looks and then you can see the teacher pushing them back. And um, I could see that the drop site was clear and so we dropped the first bag. The way we do it, of course, we had the door off and... Uh, as we come in on approach, we drop the flaps down, uh, bring back the power on the engine, come as low as we want to. But in this case, there were trees at the other end or near the river and we couldn't go too low, otherwise we wouldn't clear the trees. And um, I gave the signal and the first bag went out. There was a young warrior young 17-year-old kid there, a school kid. And he ran out to pick up the bag. And as he picked it up, he felt it was soft. It wasn't heavy to him. And so carried it, uh, put it under the teacher's house. We did our second drop. He came out again, picked up the bag, felt how easy it was for him to pick it, how soft it was. Unfortunately, some of the bags, we used to put bar soap in them. And if someone gets hit with one of those, it really... So the third bag is not soft. The third bag had soap in it. And uh, we came a little higher because we, in the first two drops, we'd been getting a little too close to those trees. So we dropped from a, a higher altitude. And uh, this young man ran out. He ran out... After I had lined the aircraft up on final, coming in to do the drop, and when on final you can't see the drop site because the engine nacelle is in the road. And I used to judge where I dropped it by a house. In this case, at Samumani, it was a, a toilet that was outside. As soon as we passed the toilet, I gave the signal, shove him, and Pastor Rathel would push it out. And he did, but the young man had come out 
Somehow he knew that I wouldn't see him when we were on late final. And uh, so, if you had there. known, if you had known that he was there, you probably wouldn't have. I dropped. would have aborted. Yes. And the teacher would have found him there. The girls saw him there, and uh, they were quite thrilled at what was happening. They'd never seen anything like this before. So we threw the bag, and uh, he caught it, positioned himself and caught it. It rolled him over several times, knocked him unconscious. But his arms still hugged the thing. The teacher came out very upset and concerned for the young man. We thought, he thought, we didn't know anything that was happening. We didn't know anything about it until weeks later when we heard the story. But uh, we thought that, uh, he thought that he, the man was dead, but he wasn't. He eventually woke up, they threw a bucket of water over him and uh, he saw all these village girls around him. He thought he was in heaven. <laughs> One thing he said that was important. One thing I know, I'll never do that again. And that was wise. If you've enjoyed these conversations and want to access more of Pastor Winch's story, there's a book published in 2014 about Pastor Winch called Winchy. It is subtitled Mission Stories of Colin and Melva Winch. It is written by Ross Goldstone and can be obtained from any Adventist book centre. So if you would like to get a copy of that, you can just Google that, I imagine, and, uh, and find uh, your local Adventist book centre or have one sent to you. Colin, it's been really great talking with you uh, over the last two hours. Um, it's been faith-inducing in me to hear your stories, and I'm sure that those people who've heard them will have enjoyed the stories and got the obvious implications of, uh, of the message of those stories. Would you like to close our program today with prayer for our listeners? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your promises in your word. For the one in Isaiah, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not discouraged, for I am your God. I will uphold you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying unto you, Fear not, I will help you. Dear Lord, please help our listeners and us here in the studio to allow you to lead in our lives from this moment onwards. Please send your Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts and plans and protect us and our dear ones from every harm and danger. May we feel God's presence comforting and keeping us each day. We ask, dear Lord, for these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Colin, thank you for um, sharing your inspirational life and stories. It's been really wonderful to talk with you. Remember to tune in again next time as I speak with another fascinating guest on Life Learnings. Bye for now, and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.